Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Kim Haynes Eitzen, author of the book Sonorous Desert, What Deep Listening Taught Early Christian Monks and What It Can Teach Us. Kim, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Okay, sure. Um, So I am currently um, a professor of early Christianity and early Judaism at Cornell University. Uh, My department is the Department of Near Eastern Studies, and I'm closely tied to the Religious Studies program. I've been here almost almost 25 years uh, working in the area of the history of early Christianity and early Judaism. And that the book comes out of that area of expertise. I also have a long, a lifelong relationship with desert environments. And um, I'd be happy to go into that later in the podcast. Um, But the book comes out of some personal interests, but primarily academic expertise in the Greek texts that these Christian monastic texts were written in. It was a fascinating read because I, I, I cannot recall the last time I, I read a book that so blended the academic with the personal, the way that you did drawing, you know, using one to draw insights into the other. What led you to write a book like this? Well, I will, I'll admit, I began it as an academic project. It was going to be straightforward. I thought I would like to understand the acoustical dimensions of early Christian history. Um, And what I mean by that is scholars have worked on the visual aspects of early Christianity. They've worked on smell. They've worked on some of the other senses. And I really wanted to understand how listening functioned. Um, And I started going taking a close look at the monastic literatures from about the 3rd century through the 7th century because these texts talk about the importance of silence. And so in a way, it was the reverse (laughs) look into silence because I'm interested in sound and listening. But as I looked closely at these texts and reread them, and almost all of the ones I worked on were were um, written in Greek. There are some. They're, they're, the corpus is huge of early Christian monastic texts, and that includes texts written in Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Greek. And I paid close attention to the kind of vocabulary that was used to talk about sound. So that was one sort of point of entry. Now, why listening? In part, I was interested in listening because the vast majority of early Christians were not literate, and they were not reading a book. They were not seeing a text on a page in front of them the way we think of reading a book. They were hearing it, and they were hearing texts read, stories told, and simultaneously experiencing their own acoustical environment, whether that was urban or it was rural, whether it was desert or, you know, coastal. 
so there's a kind of intersection between listening to texts, listening to stories, and listening to the world one lives in. And that's something that you describe in your book by connecting it to the experience of listening in the world today. And, and that's part of what I, I thought was so fascinating about it, which was it, it seems that while we have these texts, it can be so difficult to recapture exactly what it must have sounded like back then. You know, even if you factor out all the technology and everything, we're still talking about a very different world. And yet you undertake that exercise of, of, of considering from a modern perspective that, that experience of listening and, and what you draw from it. Why the desert, though? Why, why, why did you focus in particular upon the experience of listening in, in a desert environment as opposed to, say, a coastal one or a forested one or, or, or just, you know, in different environments in general? Yes. Well, partly I focused on that because the earliest monastic texts privilege the desert as a site of monastic practice, for monastic practice. So in a way, we can think of the desert both with sort of quotation marks around it as a kind of imaginary space, but then we can also think about it as an environmental space and a geographic space, which is where we can see the earliest spread of early of, of Christian monasticism as individuals, according to the stories we have, began journeying outside of their villages, outside of the, their family environment, farther and farther into a desert, which had long been thought of as a place of danger, not just danger, temptation. It's where you go to be tested. It's where you go to be to, to have a revelation. By the time this movement spreads, there was a long history to events, biblical events, that had happened in the desert, whether that was the, the in the Sinai, um, Negev deserts, Egyptian deserts. So there was a there was both the imaginary realm of the desert as dangerous place, which is perfect for monks who want to test their resolve. Um, and there's also the physical challenges of living in a harsh landscape with limited rainfall, limited resources. So, and this is an experience that comes across uh, most particularly in your description of uh, Antony. And I was wondering if you could perhaps briefly describe uh, who Antony was and, and, and something about the, the author of the works uh, that uh, describe his experiences as a hermit in the desert. Yes. So we have a fairly long story about this man named Antony from Egypt, as far as we can tell, from some a probably smallish village along the Nile. Um, his biographer, and he's, he's living in the 3rd century, 3rd century into the 4th century. His biographer is the Bishop of Alexandria, so very urban um, ecclesiastical writer who writes in Greek. His name is Athanasius. He's writing in the mid to late 4th century, the story of this figure named Antony. It's a fairly long 
As far as biographies of uh, monks or saints go, it's a very long one. And it describes how he's going, he goes to church, he hears passages about giving everything to the poor, he thinks about the burdens he's carrying in terms of family and the the what he kind of describes as worldly burdens and he over the course of the opening chapters decides to leave all that behind and make his way into the desert and the story is written again it's really hard to know how much of the story is historically accurate we sort of have to that's a question that remains in our reading of a story like that. And at the same time, I'm interested at the story level. How does Athanasius craft this story to make this figure, Antony, seem like a figure others would want to imitate? And that's really at the core of the book. So it's about how does this figure leave his home, go into the desert, first a little ways outside of his village, then into some ruins, on farther and farther until he gets to what's called the inner desert, a remote desert. Um, people flock to him. They crowd him. Uh, he tries to get away. He preaches to them. He heals them. All of this embedded in the story. And a striking feature of the story is the setup is... Antony's quest for quiet, for a place that doesn't have so many distractions, that is silent, <laughs> and he has solitude, and yet the crowds follow him. And so he hears the noise of people. He also, according to the stories, hears the sounds of demons, and he's assaulted by sound. And, and they even, Athanasius uses the language of cacophony. It's a cacophonous place. And I'm interested, I became very interested in that tension between the quest for silence and the existence of cacophonies. And, and that gets to a point that uh, you make uh, early in the book that, that I thought was was one that, you know, I, I think about, you know, you know, what I desire silence, about how silence doesn't strip away all noise. It's the it, it instead exposes sounds that we don't always hear, and 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 how that you know it, it, in a sense it, it it pairs away you know so many different sounds, and, and gets to different sounds, and and how that you know can shape our focus and and change the way we think about things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that silence, like solitude, is kind of fraught in our world. On the one hand. We crave it very often. We want silence. We want solitude. We want less distraction. And it also is terrifying. And what's really intriguing to me is that we see that paradox. Um, you know, push me, pull you as far as silence and solitude in the desert, which is on the one hand, we want it. And on the other hand, it's terrifying. Um, but we learn from it. And I guess the other piece to that really is that we often think of deserts are dead places. We think of them in terms of absence, absence of water, absence of life. And we do that with silence too, uh, absence of sound. But in fact, it, neither one of those definitions work. 
And so what's really compelling to me is to rethink silence not so much as about absence, but as a different kind of presence. And, and this gets to your description of how you uh, capture this. And you describe this reporting, this recording project that you've undertaken. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk about this project, how it uh, developed and how it informs your approach to understanding silence throughout the book? Yes. In some ways, it's the, um, it's the at an angle approach that I took to these <laughs> monastic texts, which is to say I became, I, I worked my way through them, read them, reread them, looking for acoustical registers, looking for the mentions of sound. And at a certain point, I really, I became dissatisfied with just reading them off the page. And I needed to train my own ears. I needed to hear the text in a different way. And so I began making field recordings in desert environments. And I suppose in the earliest stages, I thought, well, I'll capture something of the sounds that monks heard. But really, it's my attempt to create an evocative register so that there's a conversation between the recordings I've made and these texts. But it's not an attempt to say, listen to this recording because this is what the monks heard. So I want to both develop, hone our own listening practices and get us to rethink about how, how we listen to an environment around us and how we do that in connection to the past and how we do that with these monastic texts. So there's a kind of conversation between the past and the present there are, you know, there are certainly historians of early Christianity who have worked to reconstruct things like basilica acoustics. What would a sermon have sounded like? That wasn't, that wasn't my goal, which, and yet at the same time, every time I went to various deserts and made field recordings, I was, on the one hand, trying to understand this quest for silence. And on the other hand, I was listening very closely to the environment around me and then returning to these monastic texts and actually finding that I saw things in them I didn't see before that had to do with sound, whether it was the sound of a raven that I had just passed over or the slight sound of someone's breath. And so for me, there was a very important, instructive conversation between my recording practice and my study of these texts. And it's one that, uh, you know, to me, it sounded, seemed like you, it was quite, it could be quite a challenge because as you describe, our world is so much noisier. You go out, you know, to the desert. You would go out to the. You you describe going out to Death Valley, yes. and how you know even there you, you have the the sounds of of, of construction uh, in, in the distance. Or you you go to uh, you know 
the, the Rio Grande and you're traveling to a quiet place and yet there's traffic sounds and plane sounds. And, and, and yet I, I like how you, you then talk about how, you know, these sounds, you know, even though they've grown greater, it's not as though we've abandoned the quest for silence, that that seems to be one of the constants of the human condition, that even as we get noisier, we still crave a, a, a degree of silence that, 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 you know, seems to be harder and harder to achieve. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I really came to see the desert as my teacher, because I was so incredibly frustrated by going to these remote desert spots. You know, I, I researched good places to go, hoping to capture quiet silence. And, you know, invariably, whether it was in the Negev or Judean deserts or it was in the southwest of, the, of North America, invariably a jet would cross or there would be border patrol or there would be people camping in a tent that seemed like it was really far away, but you could hear their voices once I put on the microphones and listened through the headphones. And I really came to see that although our particulars might be different in the sense that we have trucks rolling past or airplanes overhead, the same challenge was there for the monks because they complain about the noise of people. They complain about the sounds of armies going past. They complain about the sounds sometimes of animals. Um, so it's, although in some ways the particulars have changed, that fraught relationship with a place that is at once seemingly quiet is also noisy. You also use the study of silence to consider the different ways of hearing, and you identify two ways of, of hearing in the desert. And I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that a bit and, and how you know this is, is demonstrated uh, both in your experiences and in the texts. Yes. So over the course of researching this book, I became really interested in the fields of bioacoustics and also acoustic ecology. Um, and I describe these in the book, these two fields, um, because to me, they seem to provide two different kinds of ways of listening that are equally important. Um, the field of bioacoustics, where we see this really flourishing is in ornithology, the sounds of birds. Um, and so what scientists in bioacoustics are doing is they're listening to species. They're recording particular species. They're looking for animal communication. Um, they, are, they can be also looking for how the environment is impacting an animal's ability to communicate through voice, through sound, um, whether that's insects or birds or whales. Um, so that's in my view, that's one way of honing in on the particular sound. What is this particular sound in the environment doing? What's it communicating? What can it teach us? And the field of acoustic ecology 
in part comes out of um, a music musicology um, in the 60s and 70s. This is one, one sort of wing of acoustic ecology where it's looking at the whole environment, the whole interaction of sounds in a place to understand kind of the ambient, the big picture. Um, and there's really exciting work in both fields, I have to say, really exciting work that's being done that, that shows us more and more about the importance of our sonic spheres. Um, so that, in, in acoustic ecology, it's looking at that interplay between different sounds. And so I used both of those, thinking about, you know, one particular species that I might be listening to in an environment, but also looking at the whole ambient sound. One of the things that I must confess I didn't appreciate until you were describing it was how we could talk about sound in the desert and as the, as, as something that's distinct from sound, say, in a community of people. And yet, as you describe it later in the book, that the sound of the desert can be different and a different experience in different parts of the desert. And you, you highlight in particular two environments within the desert where you have that distinction. The first piece is canyons. And that, that's the one that when I, when, I, when I got to that, I was like, oh, of course, because you, you think about how canyons are a place where you could have silence in a way where when you have noise, it becomes so much more apparent because it's literally reflected by, not literally, but you know, it's is, is practically reflected right back at you. Right, it, it beca you become so much more aware of sound in that particular environment. Right, right, yes. Um, so, in thinking about the distinctiveness of different kinds of geographical features, so some of the early Christian monasteries were built on canyon walls, and the stories about these monasteries talk about echoes. Well, that makes sense to me in thinking about. How does sound reflect back to us when we're in a canyon? In what ways does it dampen certain sounds and enliven, amplify other sounds? What would the register of a particular kind of geographical place, if we think about it in relationship to its acoustics, what might we learn about how people have inhabited canyons? and learn to live with their kind of distinctive acoustic registers, sounds. And then the same would go really for mountains. There's so, ma so many early Christian texts that really talk about mountaintop experiences. Um, we, we call those these days peak experiences, and people bag peaks, <laughs> and they go to the top of a mountain, and it's a real quest to get to the top. Um, and that we see that kind of quest to get to the pinnacle in some of our ancient texts. And that also creates a kind of acoustic environment where it could be howling winds, it could be utterly silent. Um, when Just in the course of casual conversations with people who've climbed, say, Mount Sinai, or, or, uh, which is right next to St. Catherine's Monastery that I talk about, in the book, you know, some people will talk about 
getting to the top, and it's completely silent. They've never heard such silence before. And other people get to the top, and it's howling. It's 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 really treacherous. So there's the, these are, in a way, I mean, they are extreme test cases for thinking about our environment and its sonic dimensions. The the mountain one I thought was particularly interesting because the stories that you highlight from Bible. Uh, convey this theme that we go to mountains in the desert for the silence but it seems as though we go there in particular not to seek silence but to hear but but what we're seeking to hear is is the voice of god yeah and 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 how that is it's so it's like you you go to the desert for silence but in the in the desert you go to the mountains so you can hear that one voice yeah absolutely the, the texts are so engaged with the biblical stories about being on the mountain and hearing the voice of God, Moses. Um, it, it, those stories are very explicitly in the minds of these monks. And they, want, in, in a sense, they're imitating the biblical antecedents by themselves going to the desert and going to listen, going to hear. Now, hearing is is a bit of a tricky thing because they have this, there is a tension there between how do you keep a discipline of contemplation, of meditation, when it's very distracting around you? And so they want to hear and they don't want to hear, in a sense. They, they are aware of the sounds around them, and yet they're also trying to listen to their inner voice they're doing a kind of practicing a kind of inner listening where they can tune out the ambient sounds you now we describe this in terms of journeys we describe this in terms of 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 being present you also though talk about how for these monastic uh, individuals these monastic communities for them, they, they made their homes in these places. And this is another aspect of uh, your uh, description in which it is not just one that is taken from the text, but one that is lived in experience itself. I was wondering if you could perhaps you know, talk a bit about that, the, the, you know, what it means in terms of when these places become our home and, and our connection with, with sound and silence in that environment. Yes. So, I mean, that's a question I think that has multiple, there are many ways I could answer that. Um, There is certainly in these texts stories about how a monk goes out and finds a place, a cave under a palm tree, little trickle of water, falls in love with the place and makes it their home. But that's also... There is a, there is a, um, what I think of really as a fraught dimension to this whole um, quest for solitude, which is that the desert becomes imagined as a place that is empty, that doesn't have anybody there, a place that the monks can make their home and live there. So one answer to that question is, that or or one dimension to that question is that 
home itself is a fraught idea, I think. Um, the monks clearly were inhabiting places that had had other inhabitants before them because they talk about the, those residues, whether they're living in ruins. Um, sometimes it's very explicit, sometimes it's implicit. So they make their home there. The image that we get, the story we get, is it's a very happy place for them. It's the place they recognize. And I think there is there is an, an overtone to that or an undertone that we share today. For many of us, I think what is home is kind of a hard question to answer. Um, and it's it's not... It's not always so straightforward, and I think we we share this sense, of a, a kind of yearning for belonging, and at the same time, it, when we start thinking about home, home itself can be, there can be some conflicting emotions about it and conflict, conflicting ideas about it, and and what what do we claim as our home? I guess that's really the question that keeps coming up in thinking about making a home. And it seems that if you seek to make a home in a place of silence, a place where you can disconnect, that there's a contradiction there that, that, you, that, you, uh, in, that you incorporate, which is that you have to live in a place that can support life. You can't go and say, live in the silence of space <laughs> because, right. because where you have silence, you, you have no life. But it, it, and so it, 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 it points to the, the sense that the place where you can carve out that home, you can maybe withdraw to a degree, but there, but you cannot in the end escape sound that, that, that it, it is going to be part of your life right. and, and that you, you have that, you still making that relationship with it. Yes, absolutely. And even if you do happen to find, you know, a place that you think is really quiet and and yet has the resources that you need to survive, you are making sounds. So the texts talk about the sounds of the monks themselves, hearing their footsteps, hearing their voices, um, that when they meditate, they're repeating passages or prayers and actually making them audible. So, in a sense, one of the features of this tension between silence and and um, noise is the role of human beings in these places, not just, say, from a jet overhead, but from those who call it their home themselves. And so for the monks, they go to these deserts hoping to find silence, but they themselves make sound. And you know, I was actually, oh, well, one thing I could just add to that is that one of the kinds of texts I did not treat in the book, I did not go into these in, in much detail at all, are the monastic rules. So we very often think of monasticism as kind of this rigid, rule-oriented, austere practice of celibacy, um, very limited diet, maybe fasting for long periods of time being in solitude, being in silence. Um, but these monastic rules are really wrestling with the sounds that monks make and how to, how to govern those, how to, how to you know, <laughs> make structures so that the monasteries themselves are not so noisy. 
and yet I, I was struck by the the, the sense that the, that the monks themselves didn't necessarily want total silence. And, and yeah. the, the part of your book that I'm thinking of where that comes across is the uh, anecdote that you relay of the monk who had the sparrow tapping on the window yeah. and how he encouraged that. Yeah. And, you know, he would tap back. And, and you, you don't really, uh, you know, you know, make this point when uh, at the end, but there, I did nonetheless have that sense that that when the sparrow stopped showing up, that 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 was definitely something that that he missed. Yes, there was a loss. Yeah, he he. Uh, the, he this was the head mon- um, monk, um, the leader of the the abbot of the monastery of Saint George of Hozaba, which is um, on the road or off the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho in the Judean desert. And it's a cliff monastery, goes back uh, probably to the 6th century, at least in some form. It's a beautiful monastery and a place that people nowadays can go visit, still active. And when I went to visit and to do some recordings there in the canyon, I spoke with him about my interest in sound, and the first thing he did was pull out his cell phone to say he had been recording sounds himself. (laughs) So, you know, these are lived, shared experiences, and he talked about this, I don't remember now whether it was a starling or a sparrow, and he might not have specified, but a, a bird that had come to his window every day and would tap on it, and he would tap back, and then one day it didn't appear. And he was clearly, it was, there was an absence there. It definitely gets to the the, the tension that, yeah. that, that seems to exist with our relationship with sound. Right. So, well, I appreciate the time that you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes. Um, I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. So I have two two different projects. Um, one, also for Princeton, um, I'm working on a biography of the Gospel of John. Now, this may seem like a completely different kind of project, but in fact, it's, it's for Princeton's um, Lives of Great Religious Books series. And the Gospel of John became fairly quickly early on after it was written, the most interpreted, uh, quoted, beloved of the Christian gospels in, in Christian history. And yet it is a very fraught text. It is a text that is very challenging. It challenged its earliest interpreters, um, and it continues to challenge readers today. So there's a, a history there, and I'm I'm charting out that biography of how that text has been read and reread and understood and used. And then the other project is a is is more in I would say an infancy stage, which is I'm working on rethinking what a natural history of religion might look like um, and centering on part of it will be sounds, but more broadly environmental spaces um, and the way in which religious literature, lore, and practice has intersected with things like water, trees, fire, uh, wind, weather, thunder, 
So there are some in this project, there are some, there, there will be some threads that tie it to Sonorous Desert, but it also will go in a, in a new direction in terms of environmental history. Those both sound like fascinating projects. I, I wish you the best with them. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us, Kim. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. I enjoyed chatting, chatting with you.